Uh, if you're visiting us here today, maybe you're wondering yourself why it is that we sing so much about blood and things like that. Sometimes I, as a guy who has a background as a, in a playing in, in heavy metal, death metal bands before I was a Christian, I always wonder if we might not be giving like a strange first impression for people that come in here with all these songs about the blood of Jesus. And uh, if you're worried about that, or if you're wondering about that, I hope that uh, as we, our passage today will clear that out at least somewhat. Um, we sing about it a lot because because it's, it was the death of Christ that won our freedom for us. And although it was he, he suffered in it, it was awful for him, it was the thing that bought us our liberation from sin and from death. And so we sing about it a lot. And the passage that we're going to read today from the book of Hebrews, uh, it talks about what Jesus' death and resurrection really accomplished for us. And I love this passage particularly because it gives us uh, an insight into some of the nuances and some of the mechanics of that that we don't see as well from other passages of Scripture. So we're going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18, and how it speaks about Christ's victory over death for us. Would you please stand, if you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's Word, out of respect for the speaker who is God, I am only the reader. Hear now God's holy and inerrant word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. The beauty of it, Lord, it tells us a story that we would never guess and could never, ever, ever make up. Uh, Left to our own devices, we would and we do make up religious scenarios where we come and make ourselves presentable to you, but your gospel contradicts every one of those foolish notions and humbles us, telling us that we are incapable of doing that. But the beauty of the gospel is, and the beauty of you and your character is, is that you've won our salvation for us. Although we were enslaved to sin and enslaved to death, uh, you have won victory over death for us. And so, Lord, we praise you and we worship you and we pray that you would show us the beauty of Jesus in your word today. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There's a lot different about modern church architecture than old church architecture. This building we have is a a beautiful example of an older style. Modern churches have a much different style. Uh, A lot of differences in design, but there's one thing 
There's one design aspect of the modern church that was common in the past that is now always, always missing. Anybody want to guess what that might be or think about it? Some people might say maybe the steeple or the stained glass. A lot of churches still have those. The one thing that you will almost never find that was a common part of church design in the past that you will not find now in churches is the graveyard. You ain't going to see it. Uh, Even this church, which was, this was built later, but this church, the big church here, which was built in 1912, even by that time didn't have a graveyard, as far as I know, anyways. I know there was, a lot of times they just pull the gravestones up and build something over the top of it, so who knows what's underneath us right now or in the parking lot. Uh, But as far as I know, even this church by 1912 did not have a graveyard in it. Um, But for thousands, well, at least hundreds of years, almost thousands of years, the church graveyard was thought to be an essential part of the church grounds because it served everyone as a constant reminder of the reality of death, which is not something we like to think about. We don't do that anymore. You can't even call it a graveyard anymore without people starting to sketch out on you. Try it at the office next time you're talking about if someone's funeral or someone buying a plot, ask them if it's a nice graveyard. If it's outside of Halloween, people are going to get skittish on you. <clears throat> now we call them memorial parks. And we farm them way out into the suburbs. Uh, you know, as the, as the focus of American Christianity has slowly shifted over the course of centuries from being a religion primarily about the answer to our slavery to sin and death and into something that is primarily about how to have a fulfilling and purpose-filled life now, it shouldn't surprise us that we pushed the church graveyard out of sight. We don't want to think about it. But our great, 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 grandparents were not so shallow and they weren't so skittish about death either. They understood and we would be wise to do the same that the power of resurrection can really only be properly understood against the backdrop of death. If we don't understand death as the great problem of mankind we will never be able to appreciate the resurrection as the great solution as the great answer. And so, when we do that, instead we'll be content to spend our lives toying with the things of death and trying to figure out how to fit Jesus into our preconceived, our man-made and culturally syncretized notions of self. And to the extent that we do that, we deny ourselves the freedom that is ours in Jesus. And that's basically what this passage is really all about, talking about how Jesus has won us that freedom. Uh, And what this passage tells us, the shocking thing that this passage tells us, and what the thing that has always drawn my attention to it, is that this passage is saying that death is not this looming thing that's way off in the distant future. Something that we don't got to think about. Because it doesn't, it's not going to affect us until way later. And I'm not even talking about maybe you get hit by a bus on your way out of here today. I'm talking about the fact that this passage is telling us that death has pervasive effects that haunt us and affect us 
all the way through our lives. It says that the devil has power of death, whatever that means, and that he uses it against us. It says that the fear of death enslaves us. We are in a lifelong slavery in bondage to the fear of death. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Because of the resurrection, it also tells us that Christ has won for us victory over death. And those are the three big ideas I want to talk about in this passage, that the devil has the power of death, that the fear of death enslaves us, and that Christ has won the victory over death. So let's look at those one at a time. First, the devil has power of death. Look at verse 14. It says this. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Does that scare you? What is the power of death? What does that mean? Is it the power to wield or to inflict death when someone dies? Is that because the devil kills them? Think about that. One of the, one of the best responses I've ever heard in a debate between a Christian philosopher and an atheist was an a- the atheist tried uh, as an evidence against the reality of God brought up the fact of children dying and said, because children die, that is obviously unjust and, and must mean that there is no God. And rather than like run and hide from it or try to like massage it or move it around a little bit, the guy just went all in and he said, hey, you're not giving God enough credit. Actually, the death of every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived is because of God. Because of the fall, because of our sin, God has ordained, God has imputed the sentence of death, physical death, spiritual death, to all mankind. (laughs) You're not giving God enough credit. And then he went on from there to demolish the, the guy's position. But he started like that because that's reality. The devil does not have the power to wield and inflict death. That is God's power that he has ordained, that he wields over the earth. And so what is this power of death that the devil has? And the answer comes in this enigmatic scripture from Corinthians 15, 54 through 56, which I used to read and go, what does that mean? And putting it together with this passage, it, it gives the answer. It, Paul says this, the, the, the Apostle Paul says in, 50, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, he's talking about the same subject of Christ's victory over death for us, And he says, because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says this. He says, says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What does that mean? If the first part isn't confusing enough, the second part gets more confusing if you really think about it. The sting of death is sin 
The power of sin is the law. Here's what that means. When he says sting, it's metaphorical. He's talking about a scorpion, right? What is the power of a scorpion to inflict suffering and death? It's his sting. And so he's using the term sting to mean power. In other words, the power to inflict suffering and death. What gives a scorpion his power? His sting. What gives death its power? Sin. In the same way, the thing that gives death the power to inflict suffering and eventually death is sin. Sin causes separation from God and the life that flows out only from Him and the necessary consequence of that is suffering, decay, and eventually death. So that is saying the power of death is sin. Same thing that our passage says. But then he goes on from there to say, and the power of sin is the law. How can that be? Aren't those things opposites? You get it? Well, that's the point, is that they are opposites. Sin has the power to bring suffering and death because it is in opposition to the law. The law, as I said earlier, is a reflection of God's character. It's not arbitrary. God just didn't say, this is good, this is bad. It's a reflection of who he is in his goodness, love, mercy, justice, holiness, perfection. And the law then really is the perfect expression of love. How do we love God love each other. And here's the point. Our knowledge of the law, what's really right and wrong, and everybody has that written on our hearts. We all know, generally. Our knowledge of what's right and wrong uh, gives its sin, its power over us. How? Because we all know in our hearts that we don't do what's right even when we lower the standards, even when we boost ourselves up, no matter what law you try to keep, you can't keep it. I don't care if it's the law of God. I don't care if it's the bylaws to your sorority. You can't keep a virtuous code of ethics. And our knowledge of the law gives sin its power to condemn us because we know that. And that creates in us a constant sense of guilt and shame. And that is the power of death that the devil has over us. The power of death that the devil has over us is astonishingly just condemnation. Which means, well, the devil, devil is Greek. Satan, Hebrew, both things mean the accuser or uh, the adversary or the slanderer. It's talking about the devil's role of just slandering and accusing uh, God's people to God as lawbreakers, as unlovely, as morally corrupt, which is true of us. And so Satan justly accuses us We are not morally clean and we know it. And he uses this sense of guilt and shame against us as a weapon. That is the power of death that Satan has over us. You don't believe me? 
do a quick Google search on the guilt and shame that never leaves, you'll get a million and a half hits. It's astonishing. And when you read the websites, it comes from every school of thought imaginable. Buddhist, secular, scientific, everything. Everybody, the Huffington Post, everybody has their solution to guilt and shame, which tells us what? That it is a pervasive human problem. Here's some of my favorites. Five science-backed tips for getting rid of guilt. Way to stick with your worldview. Be consistent. Here's another one. Healing your guilt and shame through self-forgiveness. Never mind who you hurt. <laughs> Never mind God who you've offended. And my favor, here's my favorite. How to get rid of guilt without confessing. Because <laughs> that's what it really comes down to, right? I just don't want to tell anybody about it. What this tells us is that there is a pervasive sense of guilt and shame that is the low-level white noise of anxiety permeating the fabric of human existence. It never goes away. And the devil uses that to, to enslave us. That's the second part. The second part is the fear of death enslaves us. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I can't tell you how many times I've read that and wondered what it meant. There's this this strange phenomenon I experience. Maybe you experience it too. And that is that if my house is a little bit dirty or kind of messy or disorganized, I'm okay with it, mostly. But if papers are due, or if I have a sermon that I have to get done in the next couple hours, all of a sudden I'm a cleaning and organizing fool. (laughs) I am whipping my house into shape. If there is something that must be done, I will think of all kinds of things that I have to do right now that are super important that distract me from the real thing that needs to be done. See, the paper for you college students or the deadline or the sermon represents judgment. <laughs> I'm going to stand up here and be judged. <laughs> and so I know, and still, I mean, I know rationally that I work harder, I focus more, I give myself more time. That will result in a better judgment, but it's irrational. My fear of the judgment is an irrational response, and so I distract myself with all sorts of diversionary tactics to shelter my mind from the sense of impending judgment. I do this all the time. Maybe you can relate. Uh, And that is an analogy, an illustration of the great enterprise of the world. The great enterprise of the world is the denial of the reality of death and judgment. There was a a book, actually, in 1973, a guy named Ernest Becker, a secular author, not a Christian, wrote a book 
called The Denial of Death. And his main thesis, this is the main thesis of the book. Becker says, the main thesis is that the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying it in some way that is the final destiny of man. In other words, much of what we do is geared towards distracting our minds from the looming reality of death that faces us and our insignificance, the power it has over us. The insignificance we feel against it, the fear of it that we feel. And so Becker, a secular author, he doesn't give, a, he doesn't give any answer or hope. He's just like, sucks to be us. <laughs> But we know the answer is most of us try, right? We come up with religious-sounding or spiritual-sounding ways to deny the finality of death and judgment. Things that sound beautiful but have no evidence to back them up other than our wishful thinking. World religions are full of that kind of thing. Uh... Many of us tried things like sex and drugs and alcohol to hide from it. Some people hide from it with seeking after fame and applause and power and recognition. Some people hide from it with plastic surgery. Some people hide from it with relationship after relationship. You can add to the list your favorites. There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous that says, fear-based decisions lead to more fear. A repeating cycle. And that is basically the same thing that Ernst Becker and the author of Hebrews are both saying the same thing. Most of the sinful behavior that we engage in is in some way our means of distracting our minds from the reality of death, the knowledge of divine judgment, and our Eternal sense of guilt and shame. It runs the world. And that's tragic. In other words, the brutal reality is that the devil uses our guilt and shame to herd us like cattle into doing things that cause more guilt and shame. And we become hamsters on the wheel. And we can't break free. And in so doing, he enslaves us with the fear of death. I wish I could say this was just for unbelievers, but this goes for us too. There's present tense verbs in here. Devil has the power of death and will until he's finally destroyed. There's no qualifier in all those. It's everybody, including us. I mean, the big difference is at the end of our days, at, our, at the death of a Christian, we will be delivered from the power of the devil. The unbeliever will be handed over entirely to the power of death. That's a big difference. But even now, in this life, we are still haunted by the power of death and how it, I think, how it manifests in the human or in the Christian life is this. Our fear, our fear of the central Christian ethic, our fear of Dying to self. Our fear of death to self is the thing that holds us in what remains of our slavery to sin and death in this Christian life. 
We're afraid of what it might mean for us if we die to self, if we allow God to do with us what he would. If we let go of all of our little preconceived notions and identities of what we must be and must have to be secure, to be happy. The things that God is ripping out of our fingers and we're desperately grasping onto because we're afraid of what we will be if we don't have that. Or who will I be if I'm not this? And I, listen, I noticed this in China. I noticed the difference in China. For those of you who don't know, I just spent 12 days in mainland China teaching the underground church. China's got zero political social power. Zero. They got nothing. <clears throat> and yet the church there is exploding. Guy told me, we're not planting churches, we're planting presbyteries. Because <laughs> they hit five, six churches at a time per city and then move on. Uh, why? It's because they're totally unaffected by their cultural influence. They're not trying to be like the culture. They're not trying to fit Jesus into their culturally syncretized notions of self. They don't care. And to a larger degree, they, and it may not be much considering us, it may be just a little bit, but it's enough to make a big difference. What they're concerned about is just having Christ formed in them and then burning out as a light in their culture. They don't care. They celebrate prison. They celebrate persecution because they know that that is what God uses to form Christ in them and that is what they want more than anything else. Now, they're not perfect, but they're a little bit more like that than we are. We're not like that. And I'm preaching to myself here too, trust me, coming back. Sometimes you have to be taken completely out of an environment to notice something and put in another environment. And this is true of me as it is as all of us. We ask ourselves questions like, what will become of me if God has this way? What will happen to me if God takes away these things and forms Christ in me? We worry about all of our self-made identities our man-made constructions outside of Christ. We ask ourselves, if I am not popular, if I'm not successful in business, if I'm not rich and famous, if I'm not beautiful, then what am I? If I'm not talented, what am I? If I'm not loved and respected and smart, what am I? If I'm not straight, what am I? If I'm not gay, what am I? If I'm not Republican, what am I? If I'm not Democrat, what am I? And we take all these man-made identities and we place them before our central identity in Christ. The answer to that, who are you? We are adopted sons and daughters of God. (laughs) That's real. You are in Christ. You are not in the world. And our goal is to learn what that means. You are a child of God. 
And so the question that this passage asks us is, is it possible that in that identity, in Christ, I can find all I need and more? Is it possible that there's even greater freedom to be had in that than from anything on the secular checklist that I want to assign to myself? Is it possible that somehow Jesus has liberated us from all of those things? And that's the point. And the answer is yes. The answer is that Christ has won the victory over death. Christ has won the victory over death. That's our central reality. Look at verse 17. This is the third point. Victory over death. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A priest, what is a priest? A priest is, a, is a, someone who is an intermediator between, between God and the people. And in this passage, it really highlights that. It shows us how Jesus relates as our intermediator in both directions, both, and this is, comes out much clearer in the Greek than it does in the English, but he is a merciful high priest to us and a faithful high priest in the service of God. It really says he is merciful being and faithful towards God as high priest. Two directions. So first, how, how, is God, how is Jesus a faithful high priest in the service of God and what does all this have to do with our victory over death? First, it says, as a high priest, he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. And that's a word we don't use anymore. It means, uh, it means to satisfy divine judgment. God is just and holy. He must be just and holy, so therefore he must Judge evil. And we're okay with that. When it's someone else's evil, we're like, yes, that's good and right. But when it, <laughs> what about, our, what if our, our evil? God has to judge us too, or he would not be a just judge. He cannot violate his own character attribute of justice. Therefore, he must judge evil. And so the first thing that Jesus did for us was satisfy that divine justice. The whole project of the book of Hebrews pretty much is to talk about how Jesus is our high priest and how the cross, although man invented it as a torture device, God used it as an altar. And Jesus, as our high priest, offered himself up as a sacrifice for all of God's people. In other words, it was Jesus saying to God, accept my death as the satisfaction of divine justice against your people so that they can be clean. And so that's why we sing about the blood of Jesus. But not only did he satisfy divine judgment against us, the result, 2 Timothy 1.10 says, It says, but the appearing of Jesus our Savior has broken the power of death and it's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. By the death and resurrection of Christ, he broke the power of death and through it showed us light and immortality. The gospel shows us how to have light 
and immortality in Christ. And this is how Jesus is a merciful high priest towards his people. First, all of our, everyone here is going to die physically uh, as a consequence of the imputation of original sin, meaning God has decreed that we will all die because of our sin, basically. But Jesus and Jesus alone is the only person who is different. His death was the logical consequence of his determination to identify himself completely with the will of the Father. It was not because of rebellion, not because of sin. It was an expression of consecration, an act of devotion to the Father and to his will. And so, because of that, the holy and pure character of his death and of himself His death broke the power of death because death could not hold him in its bonds. Had no power over him. It could not hold him. The penalty of death was unjustly upon him and so he was resurrected from the dead. Sin had nothing on him and it resulted in his resurrection from the dead and now we are offered to participate in his death. His death is counted as our death so that when we die, we get to share in the same character and nature of his death. Our death is not a punishment. Our death is a transition into life everlasting. Because we get to share in Jesus' death, it means that our resurrection from the dead in the future is guaranteed. It is a certain reality. But that's not all there is to this just as the power of, of death affects all of us even now, in, in fear of death and guilt and shame, power of Jesus' resurrection reaches back and affects us even now. How does it do that? Listen to this, this other enigmatic passage of Scripture where Paul says this in Romans 6. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present tense. That's true now. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What does that mean? You know what that means? That means you get to get off the hamster wheel. That means you get to get off the hamster wheel. Listen, if Christ has broken the power of death for us and we are no longer subject to divine judgment, then we no longer have to fear death, neither in the future or now at all, it, no matter what the devil tries to tell you. You don't have to fear it. God will not deal with you according to your sins. Scripture. God does not and will not remember your sins. He says, I will not forget you, Israel. I have wiped away your sins like the clouds. Think of that picture. Just wiping the sky clean so that nothing remains. He will not remember our sins, which means... For those in Christ, meaning that we have trusted in Christ's work, 
We've trusted in his righteousness, in his crucifixion for the forgiveness of our sins rather than our own righteousness before God. We're looking outside of ourselves to Jesus. It means for us who have done that, that whenever we acutely feel that sense of guilt and shame, and our first reaction is to run to something that is going to cause us more guilt and shame, we don't have to jump on the hamster wheel. And we don't have to allow certain to hurt us into more guilt and shame. (laughs) We can say, not today, Satan. (laughs) Not today. Not today. And you are free to assert your freedom in Christ. To be truly free. To avail yourself of the pure and holy nature of the spirit within you. And to settle in to who you really are. And say your name and say, I am Rob Novak and I am a child of God. Period. I am an adopted son of the Most High. I am being shaped into the image of Christ. And that is more than enough. In fact, it is more than my wildest imaginations. So, concluding takeaways. Here's big takeaways. If you're not a Christian and you're here today visiting us, we hope today's the day you jump off the hamster wheel. (laughs) This is available for you. All you have to do is have the humility to stop thinking that you are morally and ethically perfect, which is the requirement of heaven. Uh, And we challenge you to look into the voluminous evidence for the resurrection of Jesus also the prophetic record of the Bible, which proves that God has been able to tell the beginning from the end, tell future events with, with a mathematical certainty that means that the possibility of it happening by chance is less than zero. We challenge you to look at those things and to entrust yourself to not just the evidence that God has given us, but the reality that Jesus is who he said he was. And that he offers you the forgiveness that he says he does. We pray today would be the day of salvation for you. And for the rest of us, for Christians, let's practice the shelter of Christ in our anxiety. It's a practice. And it's something that we all fail at miserably, but it's a discipline. The old, the old school spiritual disciplines were just, they're all about this. These, you know, we get them twisted thinking that these are the... Spiritual disciplines are something that we do to make us more presentable to God, but really they're shelters, they're havens that help us to refocus on who we really are in Christ and to realize and to experience His grace presently, which goes a long way towards helping us from jumping on the hamster wheel and engaging in more things that cause more guilt and shame. Take a veil of Christ's victory over death for you. And don't be afraid of what he's going to do with you. Listen. I know the fear. Terrified. Thinking of what I'll be if I totally abandoned myself to God and went all in. But I can tell you that he will never take anything from you that he will not replace with something more beautiful and better than you could possibly imagine.
And let's remember, finally, let's remember this, that what resurrection is, what Christian religion is, what the core of our theology about is really is the idea of gift. This is God's giving to us. This is what God has given us. The victory over death that allows us to not be under the slavery of death and the fear of death and the fear and the shame of guilt. And it's not just the abstract gift of knowledge, although that's important. It's not even ultimately the gift of the death of his son. Both of those real things are means to the end of the true gift, which is God himself. His beauty, his perfection, his holiness. When we die, when we are in the new creation, when we are participating in the beatific vision, we are standing in the glory of God, beholding him. Uh, in that beatific vision of heaven, we won't just be beholding his beauty, but we will and are even now participating in it. God is making us beautiful like his son, and that can be a scary thing, especially if you have different ideas about what beauty is. But we can abandon ourselves to God's ideas of beauty And remember that his gift to us is to make us beautiful like his son. And this is, we find, the true desire of our hearts. It is, it's what the distractions distract us from. It's something sin can never give. It's something only God can recreate us into, into the beauty of the divine son. And that is what we all are truly longing for. And that is what Jesus has won for us in the resurrection and in his victory over death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word, which shows us the beauty of your son and the beauty of your character. And we see this in contrast with the twisted and fallen nature of the world and even with our own hearts. So Lord, we first, we thank you. We are grateful beyond measure that you have provided a way of salvation for anyone who would believe and we praise you for giving us the faith to believe it and for drawing us into your family. And Lord, we pray for all of our friends and family and our neighbors that who don't know you. We pray that you would give us uh, kindness and compassion and friendship and peace uh, and the ability to have the kind of friendships with people that allow us the right to speak about this message. And we pray that your spirit would go before us. Lord, we pray for us that you would help us to practice, to practice uh, our freedom in the spirit. As the world tries to convince us that we must be all of these things to be whole. Some of them good things. Lord, we pray that we would always put you first and that our first identity would be that we are children of God, saved by grace, being recreated into the image of Jesus with a future more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. And that we would trust you, Lord, in all the things that you're doing in us here and now to 
sanctify us. That we would trust you, that we would lean into that, Lord. And that we would be patient and that we would wait for you. And that you would do something wonderful, Lord. So we pray that you would make us and this church a place, uh, make in us a beautiful orthodoxy that would show the world how you truly are, Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.